in 28 years of ministry, I don't know that there's ever been a movie that Hollywood has put out that I could say wholeheartedly go and see. Uh, my wife, uh, Lynn, and I saw The Jesus Revolution last night, and I would wholeheartedly say, go see that movie, support that movie, and uh, be inspired and dream about what God could choose to do uh, in this church family and uh, in the church as a whole in the United States. It's, a, it's an incredible, incredible movie. Uh, go see it. So this morning, we are going to take a look at a beautiful bridge. And I think maybe have a, a screenshot if we get it up with some, some bridges. There we go. Uh, here in the United States, there are a number of beautiful, beautiful bridges, famous bridges. One of them is the Golden Gate Bridge uh, in San Francisco. Uh, another one that there's a picture of there is the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. And uh, the Mackinac Bridge just to our north. Now, some of you maybe have had the opportunity to travel across one of those three bridges. And if you haven't, there's another bridge that maybe, just maybe, you have been across, and that is the Veterans Bridge here in Napoleon. Bridges are really unique. They, they join and they connect two land masses that are usually separated by water of some sort. Sometimes it's, it's a canyon or a valley that they, they connect, but they connect land bridges. In fact, like the Mackinac Bridge actually connects the upper and the lower peninsula of the state of Michigan, uh, and, and that is divided by Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, and it, and it bridges that. Bridges can be incredibly functional. In fact, if the Veterans Bridge wasn't here, I know a few of you that might have to swim or row just to get home this morning. Many of us have been traveling through the Book of Romans for many weeks, and this morning we are actually coming to a bridge of sorts. It's found in chapter 11 of the Book of Romans. And if you have your Bibles or a digital advice device, I would encourage you to turn or swipe to Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 33. And I want you to see for yourself this bridge. The bridge that Paul constructs does not connect two bodies of water, but it actually connects two very unique sections from the book of Romans. One of those sections is a section that focuses mainly on doctrine, on biblical truth. And the second section that it connects to focuses mainly on life application. How should we then live as a result of the, the doctrine of the beliefs that, that we've been exposed to? Now, without reviewing literally weeks and weeks and weeks of material here, let me simply remind you that the book of Romans contains all kinds of very important biblical truth. Theologians often call biblical truth doctrine, and sound doctrine is vitally, vitally important. You see, building our very lives upon biblical truths is one of the very best ways to guarantee that we have the best shot at living the kind of life that God wants us to live, a life filled with joy and a life filled with peace. And that's why one of the primary focuses that we have here at Crossroads Church is sound biblical teaching. If the Bible says it, we believe it, and we do our very best 
to obey it. Here at Crossroads, we believe that the original scriptures that have been given to us are without error, and they are 100% inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe the Bible and not our culture should be the source of truth when it comes to uh, what is true, what is false. It's our sure foundation. And, and in a world where many, many people are building their lives on uh, nonsense and foolishness, we do our very best to build our lives on biblical truth. And it's actually really sad right now in our country to see a number of mainline denominations and churches that are no longer holding to the time-tested truth of God's Word. And I want to speak real quickly to any of you that are, that are students, maybe you're in junior high, high school, college, uh, there may be a time where because of going away to school or perhaps to, to get a job that you leave your home church and are, are, are looking for a, a church to attend. I hope if that, that's the case that you do look for a church to attend. And uh, I want to encourage you young people, if you are in pursuit of another church, uh, the church that you might try out might have the, the hippest pastor or the, the most amazing worship band ever. But if they do not teach the Word of God, it's not a place that you want to be. Uh, young people, if, if you are in pursuit of a church at some point in time, God calls you to another location, please do everything you can to find a church that teaches the Word of God. So in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul does a masterful job of laying out sound biblical truth. Truth after truth after truth. And the primary truth that Paul talks about in Romans is the gospel. In the book of Romans, Paul clearly states how it is that a sinful human being can be made right spiritually with God. Paul declares clearly that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Nobody but nobody gets to heaven by being religious enough or good enough or trying to keep the Old Testament law. The second section of Romans is a section that we will begin to explore over the next several weeks. It's made up of the last five chapters in the book of Romans. And in this wonderful section, it's where Paul emphasizes how you and I should live in response to the doctrine and the biblical truths that have been laid out in chapters 1 through 11. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. That is the bridge that connects those two sections. And the NIV translation of the Bible that, that I'm going to be reading from, it actually has a subtitle over these four verses. And the subtitle says, Doxology. And uh, subtitles, just like page numbers and chapter numbers in the Bible, uh, were added later. They're not inspired by the Lord, but they're basically just reference tools. And so what we're going to be going through is what Paul calls, or, or what we call, a doxology, and it's a bridge in Romans. So listen as I, I read these four verses. Paul says in verse 33, Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord 
Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The first 11 chapters in Romans give us some of the richest and the deepest theology in the entire Bible. In chapter 9 of Romans, Paul outlines God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation. We learn that, that God had chosen this uh, group of people, the nation of Israel, to himself and called them to himself. And we later learn in chapter 10 that not only has God called the nation of Israel, but God also calls non-Jewish people to himself as well. And non-Jewish people are referred to as Gentiles. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing because more than likely, most if not all of us in this room are non-Jewish people. And so we're thrilled that God has called us as well. In chapter 10, verse 12, Paul describes that there is literally no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the, is the Lord of all of them and richly blesses all who call on his name. Paul says forgiveness is available to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And so after writing this, really it's a treasure trove of theology in Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul simply explodes into a doxology. A doxology is a short hymn of praise. And the doxology of praise from Paul has often been called the bridge in Romans because of where it comes from and where it leads to. One author likened this bridge in Romans to a mountain climber who's been climbing a mountain and finally reaches the top of the mountain to see the beauty of, of God's creation. Uh, some of you maybe have been to the beach and uh, you've seen the beauty of a sunrise coming off of the ocean. And when that happens, there's something inside of us that just automatically has to respond to all that we see. There's something inside of us that says, would you take a look at that beautiful scene? Lynn and I live just outside of Napoleon and in our, our backyard, there's a farm field. And so we get beautiful sunrises in the back and out the front yard, we get beautiful sunsets. And there's times that I'm in, in another part of the house and, and I hear Lynn say something like, Wes, you've got to come look out the door or out the window and see the beautiful, beautiful sunset. Paul's doxology at the end of Romans 11 is simply a natural response to all that God has done for the Jews and for the non-Jews alike. In short, Paul is simply expressing his amazement at the Creator. Paul is in absolute awe of who God is and all that he has and all that he will continue to do. And so he finishes this first section of Romans with a hymn of praise. For Paul, it's like putting an exclamation point at the end of the first section of Romans. And so for the remainder of our time, I simply want to look at these four verses, this doxology, this hymn of praise that Paul writes. Levi throughout Romans has mentioned that there are some chapters in Romans that are really difficult to understand. Uh, they're difficult to teach. 
This section that we're looking at today is not that. Uh, it's very straightforward. It's Paul basically, again, praising God. And I, I'm not sure where you're at this morning with your life. Uh, in, in a room this size, there are, are people who uh, life is going really well and seems to be kind of going easy. And, and for others, life is, is really difficult and really challenging. But no matter where you're at, I, I pray that this text this morning will be in, of encouragement to you and to me as we face tomorrow and the future. Let these truths about God encourage your heart. Let, let's begin as, as Paul looks at two powerful statements that he makes about God in verse 33. Look at him again. Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In verse 33, Paul is expressing the truth that our God is omniscient. That's a fancy way of saying that God literally knows everything there is to know. Last week, Levi uh, reminded us that God not only knows everything there is to know, God actually knows every possibility of things that could be known. And, and, and that's kind of a challenging thing to wrap our minds around, but let me give you a, a quick example of that, that that might be something that we could somewhat grab a hold of. So after losing one hour of sleep last night, all of us went to our closet and looked for something to wear. And uh, we put our clothes on and the combination of clothes with these pants or this shirt or this blouse. Uh, the God of the universe literally knew what each and every one of us were going to choose out of our closet to put in and, and wear this morning. He knew it well before it even happened. Beyond that, God knows every combination that any of us and all of us collectively, 200 plus people, could have put on this morning. And if that's not enough, you can add the 8 billion other people that live in this world, and God knows every single possible combination that could have been chosen for people to wear in terms of clothes this morning. Think about that. That's a huge, huge number. I'm not even sure they could mathematically calculate that. There is nothing, there is absolutely no thing that God does not know and understand. And that's why Paul expresses, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. This week I did a, a very quick search and looked for things that scientists today are still trying to discover. And I wanted to share a couple of them with you. One is this. The question that scientists are still trying to discover is what is most of the universe actually made out of? And I wanna read you just a little, a little snippet from an article. It says, it's a simple question that's also bafflingly unanswered. What makes up the universe? It turns out that all of the stars and all the galaxies in all the universes barely even begin to account for all the stuff that's out there. Our Milky Way galaxy is said to have around 100 billion stars, our sun being one of them. 
There are an estimated 10 trillion galaxies in an ever-expanding universe. Multiplying the 100 billion stars in our small galaxy would give us a conservative estimate of one septillion stars. A septillion is a one with 24 zeros behind it. Most of the matter in the universe, the article says, is actually unseeable, untouchable, and to this day, undiscovered. It's the dark matter, and despite searching for it for decades, scientists still have no idea what it is. Church, God knows what the dark matter in the universe is made of because he created it. Here's another mystery that we don't often think about. What lives in the ocean's twilight zone? A second article had this to say, as, a, as you dive deeper into the ocean, less and less sunlight shines through. And at about 200 meters beneath the surface, you reach an area called the twilight zone. Sunlight fades almost completely out of view and our knowledge about these dark depths fade too. Many scientists suggest that it's easier to define the twilight zone by what we do not know than by what we know. Yet this region of the ocean is extremely important. It's possible but not certain that there are more fish living in the twilight zone than the rest of the ocean combined. Scientists have no idea what's in the twilight zone, but church, God knows what's down there because he put it down there. Our world, friends, is filled with all kinds of mystery. What's inside a black hole? What's the deal with quantum physics? What happened to Amelia Earhart? How, many, how does the human brain function? Why when you put two socks into the dryer does only one ever seem to come out? What's outside the known universe? There are mysteries upon mysteries, but absolutely nothing is a mystery to God. Nothing. You know what else God knows, church? He knows our deepest insecurities and fears. He knows what we're going to face the rest of uh, our lives. He knows what we're going to face this year and the next and the next and the next and the next. He knows the concerns that, that we have for the next several generations, for our children, for our grandchildren. He knows our individual limits and our capacities. He knows and understands what builds our faith. And God is also aware when we need a little bit of something to humble us. God knows all of our needs and our desires, and he cares about each one. As Paul considered the richness of God's wisdom and knowledge, especially as it relates to the salvation for both Jews and Gentiles, it simply blows his mind. One commentator suggested that the depths of these realities about God make the Grand Canyon look like a crack in the pavement. No wonder Paul declares, oh, the depths of the wisdom and riches of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. We need to move to 
the next section here. But before we do, let me ask you a question that, that you might want to consider today and even on to next week. And here it is. Has there been a time in your life when God's unexpected interrupted uh, the plans that you made for your life to provide you with better plans, uh, his plans? Has there been a time in your life when God unexpectedly interrupted the plans you've made for your life in order to bless you with better plans? In uh, 1990, uh, living in central Illinois, finishing my last year of school, my plans uh, were to enter a private Christian counseling practice in central Illinois and uh, begin my life. And uh, God had other plans. Uh, that summer, I worked up at, at Miracle Camp, the camp that uh, we are part owners of in, in our little association of churches. And uh, I met a, a farmer's beautiful daughter and was wooed to come to Northwest Ohio. Very, very thankful about that. Uh, at the end of graduate studies in 1995, uh, my thought again was that I would enter a, a Christian counseling practice here in Northwest Ohio. And uh, God had other plans. I ended up on staff at Crossroads in Wasian and uh, served there happily and thought I would serve the rest of my life there happily uh, until he decided to, in 2007, uh, move Lynn and I here to Napoleon. And uh, although I loved serving in Wasian, I am so incredibly grateful uh, that we're serving here in Napoleon. In 1998, uh, my plans were not to have a brain tumor, uh, but God and his divine plans allowed that. And uh, while that was not a fun experience to go through, I am so incredibly thankful for uh, all that God has taught me through even an experience like having a brain tumor. I, I realize that God has yet to answer several of the why and the how questions that you and I have about things that he allows or doesn't allow in our lives. And most of those questions will truthfully not be answered this side of heaven. Either way, praise God that he knows and understands what's best for our lives, that he's good enough and loving enough to interrupt our plans and insert at times his plans uh, for our lives. Church, our plans, although they're not necessarily bad, are very, very often, if not always, very short-sighted. And God's plans literally travel on into eternity. Let's look at the next section here of this bridge that, that Paul writes in verses 34 and 35. He asks three rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is not a question to be answered. It's a question posed in order to make a point. And here are the three questions that we find in this beautiful bridge in Romans. Paul asks, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? What is Paul saying here? Not only is God's wisdom and knowledge beyond our ability to comprehend, God's judgments are beyond our comprehension or our ability to understand. God's ways, the way he does things, are beyond our comprehension. We will never ever understand why God does some of what he does or why he allows some of what he allows. 
Years ago, someone gave me an illustration that for whatever reason, as a visual person, it kind of stuck, and I want to pass it along to you as well. And this is as it relates to understanding God's perspective versus ours. Uh, many of you have seen cross-stitching pieces that people have done. There, there are tapestries that people use uh, really small stitches that uh, if you, you put one up and put it behind class, glass across the, road, or across the room, it almost looks like a picture. It's so detailed. Uh, and, and yet if you flip it over on the underneath side, you, you oftentimes can't even see what the, the pattern on the top side is. And, and it really is just simply to illustrate that God sees everything because he sits above time. He's at the, the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of time all at once. He sees the top view while very often we see the bottom view. We, we are not able to always perceive what he's doing but here on earth, as we experience a lot of pain and a lot of sadness, it can often feel pointless. And I don't know exactly how, but in a relationship with God, absolutely nothing that we experience is pointless. I am confident that on our very, very first day in heaven, it will put our suffering in this life in perspective. I'm even more confident that 5,000 years into experiencing what all of heaven has for us, all that being in the literal presence of God is going to be like, 5,000 years into heaven is going to put our current suffering in this life into perspective. Think about 10,000 years into heaven. And I'm not by saying that trying to minimize the suffering that anyone is experiencing right here today. I'm just trying to point out that God's judgments and God's ways of working and involving himself in our lives or withholding his involvement in some circumstances have an eternal perspective and ours is mostly limited by our understanding of time, which most of the time is the here and the now. In verse 35, Paul makes another great observation when he asks, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Here's the point Paul is making. God owes nobody anything. When we say God, we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are completely independent. God does not need anything from any one of us. Too often we begin to have this sense that God needs me to get done whatever he needs to get done. And then we sadly begin to take on the role of God. We begin to feel that God needs us if this is going to get done or that's going to get done. In ministry, we actually have a name for this. We call it the Messiah Complex. When somebody in ministry kind of begins to feel like that what God desires to happen in terms of reaching the lost in our world is only going to get done if we participate in it. He allows us to play a role in all of that church for sure, and it's an important role. However, God is more than capable of managing all that needs to be managed, doing all that needs to be done, and doing it on his own with us or without us. 
And church, that's actually a very freeing thing to realize, that God is big enough to accomplish and do his will in our lives and the lives of the people that he's put around us. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Another question I want to ask us this morning, are there areas in our lives when we are over-functioning, where we're trying to do both our part and God's part, we can relax and be still because God is fully capable of managing everything there is to manage without even breaking a sweat. Church, clearly none of us will ever be able to completely know everything there is to know about God. That's true. But this is also true. You and I will never even fully be able to understand even a single attribute of God. You and I can see and experience God's love and get a little bit of a taste of that, but we will never fully, this side of heaven, know and understand God's love. We can see and experience God's power, this side of heaven, but this side of heaven, we will never fully experience and understand God's power. We can see and experience God's mercy, but this side of heaven, we will never fully know and understand and experience his mercy. And yet when we get to heaven, we will never run out of things to learn and enjoy about God. With God, there is always more to discover and more to enjoy and more to experience. In fact, one of the, the primary joys of heaven will be having all eternity to grow in our knowledge and in our experience of God. Finally, Paul finishes his doxology, his hymn of praise in verse 36. Take a, another look at that. Paul gives three prepositions. In verse 36, we have what may be called really the sum and the substance of the whole counsel of God. The sum and the substance of the whole counsel of God. Paul ends with these words. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. From him, meaning God is the owner and the source of all things. Through him, meaning that God is the ultimate cause and instrument by which all things pass. He is 100% sovereign. To him, meaning God is central. He is the end for which all was created, the end by which all things are headed. In short, church, it's all about him. No wonder Paul finishes by saying, to him be glory forever and ever. Church, theology or doctrine rightly understood leads to the praise of God. It also motivates the way that you and I choose to live. Taking the time to more accurately understand who God is is a little bit again like seeing a sunset 
or a snow-capped mountain. You can't help but respond in praise. You can't help but desire to live your life in a way that pleases God. So next Sunday, we're going to transition and begin to, to look at this second section of Romans. And it's the, the section of Romans that talks about how you and I can respond to all that we've learned about who God is. The band can go ahead and, and come up. They're going to lead us in a final song. But this morning, I wanted to leave you with uh, verse number one from Romans chapter 12. And we'll, we'll launch off there next week. Verse number one of Romans 12 says this. Therefore, because of chapters 1 through 11, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Church, next week as we discover what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. Uh, come and, uh, and think about what God has in store for us as we finish this next section of Romans. Uh, I asked the, uh, the band if they wouldn't finish our service by singing a song called The Doxology. Some of you know it. It's a very easy song. It's a beautiful song. Because we've been looking at, at a, a doxology together, uh, that's what, how we're going to finish our service. Would you stand and let me pray and then... Uh, then enjoy singing this song together. Lord, we thank you that even when life uh, takes us by surprise, you never are. We're so thankful that you know the end from the beginning, that uh, all of time, past, present, and future sit before you at this very moment. Lord, we, we thank you that you will never leave us alone. You'll never forsake us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you're a God beyond our ability to understand. There's literally no one like you. May our lives bring you the praise and the honor and the glory that you deserve. And we pray that your word and your Holy Spirit will give us uh, a more accurate view of who you are and that it will motivate us to center our lives on you and our life's priorities around you and only you. Thanks for the many good gifts, Lord, that you continue to give us each and every day. May you be praised and receive glory as we finish this service in song. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.